Greetings and welcome to the program. In this episode, we continue in our series through the book of Revelation. I have to say, there is some really, really good biblical themes in this text that we'll be looking at today. This may be the episode I am most excited about, I've been the most excited about thus far. And so we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. So what I'm going to do is just kind of read a verse at a time here and uh, give my commentary as we go through it, uh, doing it that way. Because it's uh, there's a lot in here, a lot of really, really good stuff and uh, in these few verses here. So it starts... And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now I'll stop there with verse 12. One of the things that I didn't mention earlier, uh, because it's not something I'm totally uh, sure on, but um, when it talks about all these churches here having, uh, the seven churches having uh, seven angels, uh, one angel for the church, um, one of the views of that is that it's not a literal angel that is spoken of, but an angel is uh, representative of the um, elders of that church, which uh, I'm not going to lay out the entire case here for how you can make the connection between angels uh, to um elders or pastors in the church, but it does seem to read that way. Uh, it would I would be very open to that being the, the right understanding, because in each of these letters to the seven churches, it's it says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write. So he's writing this to the angel of the churches in all these different cities, which um, if you think about it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense if it's a literal angel. Um, but if you are writing something to uh, the elders of the church, then that would make a lot of sense because the elders are the uh, you know representatives of that church body before God. They are responsible. They will answer before God for the souls entrusted to them. They are the covenant representatives of that covenant community um, in the local congregation. So um, that is just one of the possibilities here that uh, makes a lot of sense to me. So I just wanted to mention that for you to consider. Um, but uh, moving on there, what we read again, um, another thing you'll notice is that in each of the uh, different letters to the churches. Um, it's it begins by describing Jesus in a different way. You know, the first one, the church in Ephesus. It says, "This is the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands." The church at Smyrna says, "These are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life." And then here in Pergamum, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So all these. Are, are different descriptions, of course, of Jesus, and there's got to be something to that. I haven't quite um, figured that out. It's probably 
in some way relative to uh, the issues going, the specific issues going on in the churches. Um, but uh, anyways, just notice that and think about that and what significance that might be. But the significance here in uh, the letter to the church at Pergamum, as it describes Jesus as the one who uh, has the, the sharp two-edged sword, uh, that's that's how Jesus described here. Now, where else do we see Jesus, or or where else do we see uh, this terminology of a two-edged sword? Well, it's described. It's a that terminology. You know, uh, I believe it's in Hebrews where it talks about the Word of God being living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, any two-edged sword. That's what the Word of God is. It's a, it's a, the, you know, the sword of the Spirit. And, and so that's interesting. So it says that these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And so uh, it's the picture uh, as the, the double-edged sword represents the, the words of Jesus, the Word of God. It's also showing us how it cuts and slices and uh, does hard work in us and cuts down enemies and cuts out sin of our lives. But it's interesting that later on in this same letter to Pergamum, the sword comes back into play um, after he talks to the people about their sin issues. It says in verse 16, Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. With the sword of my mouth. And so again, there the sword is uh, connected. It's, it's the sword of the mouth. So those ideas are connected, which gives us the idea of word, the word of Jesus, the word of God being a, a tool for striking down and building up and doing its work. It's interesting, later on in Revelation, we'll see that Jesus rides forth on a horse with a, two, with, with a sword coming out of his mouth with which he conquers the nations. And so there, of course, is that same imagery of conquering... Uh, yet not with a physical sword here, but sword from the mouth, um, the word of the gospel, you know, the word of God. It's, it's something that conquers Christ's enemies. Okay, <clears throat> so that's kind of the, uh, and it makes sense, you know, thinking about the relation of this description of Jesus to the Church of Pergamum. His his threat essentially is repent. If not, then I'm coming with the sword in my mouth. And so, it makes sense then that Jesus described at the outset of this letter as the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. Moving on, verse thirteen. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So this verse is very interesting, because he he says that 
this church in Pergamum is dwelling where Satan's throne is. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Um, that's very, very interesting. Um, and I think he's just speaking here about the fact that they're in this city, Pergamum. And if you uh, understand and read about this uh, city, Pergamum, it was, uh, you, it was, you know, the uh, another version of Rome, where it was the the center of a cult, uh, of cult worship and uh, temple, you know, uh, not temple, uh, cult worship and uh, idolatry and uh, fornication involved with uh, worshiping idols, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, uh, this is actually uh, some some commentators describe Pergamum as the Rome of the East. You know, you had, you had Rome in the West, which was the center of uh, idolatry and pagan worship, and uh, the uh, the uh, uh, worship of the emperor and all all the the sin and debauchery and and just disgustingness involved with that. Pergamum was that. In the east, and uh, so that's what he's describing here. It was it was so bad that um, there were Christians who, you know, uh, well, they just they weren't able to function. You know, they they weren't able to work if because they wouldn't participate in these these pagan uh, worship orgies and different things. It was going on. They wouldn't pinch the incense on the altar to the emperor, and uh, so they were outcasts. They were, they were rejected, and um, had a very difficult time of en- enduring those things as as being Christians in the place where, as as described here, where Satan dwells. So he tells them, you know, I know where you're dwelling, where Satan's throne is. And yet, despite that, he says, you're holding fast to my name. You're not denying my faith. Even when um, whoever this guy was, Antipas, a faithful witness, was killed. Um, so there's some there's persecution of some to some degree, at least in this one instance. Then he says in verse 14, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food and sacrifice, uh, eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So, as verse fourteen and fifteen, the thing that he has against this church in Pergamum is that despite the fact that they are yet holding fast to his name and the faith in the, in the midst of Satan's throne. They have some people among them who are teaching, or uh, they're holding to the teaching of Balaam. Now, what was the teaching of Balaam? Well, it is described for us right here. It says, uh, who holds the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So that's the teaching of Balaam, that... Um, well, if you remember the story of Balaam, it's back in Numbers, around Numbers chapter 25 and kind of the surrounding chapters there. 
this uh, foreign king to Israel, Balak, wanted Balaam, this prophet, to come and, and, and prophesy curses down and curse the Israelite people. And of course, uh, Balaam would only, he said that he would only prophesy that which the Lord gives him, and he did that. However, Balaam then uh, taught Balak, as we're told, uh, other ways of essentially conquering Israel, and that was to entice them, and that's exactly what happens. You go to Numbers 25, and the people of Israel begin whoring around with the pagan women, and they begin, because of that, going into idolatry, worshiping false gods, and um, uh, very immoral and idolatrous. And it says in Numbers 31 that this was done uh, upon the advice of Balaam. Okay, so that is the, it was a more subversive, sneaky tactic to seduce Israel to fornication and idolatry. And that is the type of teaching, apparently, that's the teaching of Balaam, and that is apparently what some people of the Church of Pergamum were were uh, holding on to, which of course is a huge, huge deal. And so, um, he then says in verse 15, after that, he says, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And these were, this was mentioned uh, in the church of Ephesus that um, one of the good things about Ephesus was that they hate the works of the Nicolaitans. And yet we have this church in Pergamum that has, has some among them who are holding the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, what was this teaching? It's essentially the same thing as the teaching of Balaam, uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols and in a way that's participating in the idolatry and then uh, committing pagan uh, fornication in this worship process. And in fact, the Nicolaitans were a group that were essentially antinomians, teaching that there is now no law, and so because it's there's it's not a sin, they can go out and they can do what they want, and they can participate in idolatry and immorality. And that was the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which is, as you see, pretty much the same thing as the teaching of Balaam. That's why they're obviously grouped together here. So that's the, the big, big thing going on, which um, is very reflective of the city that this church was in. Okay, that was what was going on in this city. They were, they had all this pagan worship, emperor worship, that of course was involved with so much uh, sexual immorality and fornication. And um, um, that was the culture, the city they were in. And obviously from that, there are some there in this church who were, just like the world they were living in, who were teaching or holding on to these things, at least practicing them in some way. And so then, of course, verse 16, therefore repent. And that's the answer, repent. Therefore repent. He says, then he, then he gives a warning. He says, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And we talked about that. 
He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This last verse here, verse 17, that I just read was very, very uh, interesting here. We have some interesting symbolism that carries some huge biblical themes. Um, he starts off with familiar phrases that we see in pr pretty much all these letters here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the, to the churches, to the one who conquers. So again, there's the, the promise held out. The one who conquers will receive, and that's something we've seen in, in, in all these letters. The one who endures to the end, the one who conquers will receive this or that. And what does he offer, the one who conquers, to the churches in Pergamum? He says, I will give, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden, hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now that is some interesting terminology that might be difficult to understand. First thing is he says to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now what in the world is the hidden manna? And this is where it becomes very, very important that in order to understand the book of Revelation, you absolutely have to understand the Old Testament, and some really, really uh, serious details of the Old Testament. Because, uh, in fact, the it's said that the uh, book of Revelation is the uh, most Old Testament book in the New Testament. Um, I think someone said, I can't remember the source on this, but they were, I think I read somewhere that about 40% of the book of Revelation is either quotations or clear imagery, uh, something. 40% of the book of Revelation is a clear, quote, paraphrased imagery from the Old Testament. Um, so you cannot understand the book of Revelation without the Old Testament. You know, and it's, and it's unfortunately a lot of modern day dispensational approaches to the book of Revelation or people who have a futuristic approach to the book of Revelation they tend to, instead of using the Bible and the Old Testament to interpret Revelation, they tend to see all the images and symbolism and then try and look to the modern world to see what this could be. You know, you know the pop popular thing, you know, is the mark of the beast. What could it, could it be? A, could it be a microchip? Could it be, you know... Uh, a tattoo or, you know, a chip or a barcode, you know, all these different things. Um, but, you know, that is just, uh, that's eisegesis. You're, you're reading into the text something that is absolutely foreign to the text and the world of the text. Um, and we'll get, obviously, to that part of Revelation when we get there. Uh, but I'm talking about the principle here of in order to understand Revelation, we need to know the Old Testament. And that's where the hidden manna. What is the hidden? I mean, we know what manna is. That's an obvious thing from the Old Testament. God sent manna to the Israelites to eat in the wilderness, bread from heaven. But hidden manna, what is that? Uh, 
Um, well, it's very interesting. In Exodus, um, I think around Exodus 33, or Exodus, uh, uh, no, Exodus 16, um, verse 33 and 34, you will see an interesting little, just a small couple verses there where it mentions that Moses had Aaron gather a little bit of manna to put into the Ark of the Covenant so that it would keep there and it, they would have it with them perpetually wherever the people were with the Ark of the Covenant. And that, you know, that would be the manna that was hid, you know, the hidden manna, you know, hidden in the Ark of the Covenant. And um, in fact, in Hebrews chapter 9, it's talking about some of the old covenant regulations of worship and mentions the manna that was put into the ark for the covenant. And so that would be the, the, the manna that was hidden in the ark. And of course, what is the manna and what is the ark? Well, ultimately, it's Christ. I mean, we know that from John 6. Um, if you're... Uh, Someone at my church who's listening to this, we you know went through John six a while back, and uh, they talking about the 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 man in the wilderness and how their fathers ate of it, and Jesus says, "Yeah, um, I am the bread of heaven. I am the man of life. I am uh, the bread of life for the world." So the Jesus is is actually manna from heaven, sent from God, God's divine provision, and. Of course, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, Jesus is the Ark. Um, and so, essentially, the image then, if if the promise here is you conquer, I will give you the hidden manna. He's, he's essentially saying, I will give you myself. I'm giving you Christ. I am giving you divine provision, blessing, which is Christ himself. And uh, so, very, very fascinating. But keep the manna picture in your mind, because that actually plays off something else here. He says, I'll give you hidden manna. Then the next thing he says, and I will give him a white stone. A white stone. That's interesting. What? Why would he give a white stone? Um, this is also very interesting. The... White, um, so in one place in the Old Testament, uh, it, where it's talking about the manna, it describes manna as being white. Yeah, manna was white. It had a white appearance. And in fact, in another place, I think it's in Numbers. Let's see if I can see it here. Um, I think it's Numbers 11, 7. Um, it actually... Here, let me just look it up so I make sure I got this correct here. Numbers. I am literally flipping pages here in my Bible. So it in Exodus, it describes manna as looking white. So yeah, if you look up Exodus 16.31, it says that the manna was white. Uh, I'm paraphrasing there, but describes it as white. Then in Numbers 11.7, it says that the manna, now the manna was like 
coriander seed and its appearance like that of bdellium. Its appearance was like that of bdellium. Now, I don't know if I'm pronouncing bdellium right. I think that's how it's pronounced. But bdellium was a, it is a, a, a stone. And in fact, it was a white stone. It was a white stone. Bdellium was a white stone. And it was described as white in appearance in Exodus. And in Numbers, it is specifically said to look like bdellium. Now, where else do we see bdellium in the Bible? <laughs> well, you have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 in creation in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God, you know, he planted the tree. He made the garden, he planted the tree, and he put a river in the garden, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and divided into four different rivers. And um, da, 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 Genesis chapter 2, God puts, so he puts the tree, he puts the garden, he puts uh, the river to water the garden, and then he put gold in the garden. He put gold in the land. God, when in creation, the garden of Eden, he put gold in the land. And it says the, in verse Genesis 2.12, And the gold of that land is good, bdellium and onyx stone are there. So not only did God put the tree, the rivers, the gold, but he also put bdellium and onyx stone. Bdellium. So this was, this is originally, we first see the bdellium imagery in the book of Revel or in the book of Genesis. In the, in the beginning, in creation, before the fall, we see bdellium. Okay, and now we see it as something that is going to be given to the one who conquers in the church of Pergamum. And now, are they going to be literally given like just an actual bdellium stone here? Um, I guess they could, but I think what is this... But it wouldn't be just that. What is this symbolizing to us? Well, this is very, very interesting. This is this is definitely where my post-millennial theology comes in. And really, you wouldn't have to be a post-millennial to appreciate part of the imagery, but it helps. Um, when, when he promises a bdellium stone to the one who conquers... What he is doing is he's bringing up these images of the garden, okay? He's bringing up the images of the garden, uh, which, what was the Garden of Eden? I mean, it was uh, paradise. It was paradise. It was uh, unbroken fellowship with God in paradise. And um, it, And so when it's given as the reward here, it's... Uh, indicating that you will endure, um, you will repent, and you will conquer, and you will be given paradise. You will be given a restored, renewed uh, paradise, unbroken fellowship with God. Um, 
it you, you it's essentially if the onyx or the the bedellium is essentially your re-entry into the garden you know man was in the garden in a fellowship with god in paradise he sinned and he was kicked out of the garden uh, guarded by angels and you conquer toward the end you receive your re-entry so to speak into the garden into paradise paradise is now restored and um, um, that is actually i think i've mentioned it before at least to my church but there is a fantastic book it's the best book that i've ever read in my life and i absolutely mean that it's called paradise restored by david chilton you need to go you absolutely have to go and get that book buy it you want to have it in your house it will rock your world it will change your life it's the best book i've ever read you have to get it um you can find it um americanvision.com or .org american vision sells the book they're the ones that have it in print right now um or you can try and find a used copy somewhere online but you have to find a way to get that book and read it. If I could only have everyone just read one book, it would be that one. So go get that book, read it. Um, so we have this imagery, this this promise of restored paradise, restored fellowship with God. Then the last thing, so after the Bedellium Stone, then... Um, which, and if you think about... Real quick, I guess, before I move on, one more thing. If you think about the connection between uh, the manna and the bedellium stone, because there's the connection is with those two things together as well, especially if you are Israel in the Old Testament, wandering around the wilderness, eating this manna from heaven, you are, and you are seeing it as this wine, and you're seeing it as looking like bedellium and of course you know the garden story you know genesis you're you're being reminded um you're being reminded of the garden you're being reminded of that fellowship with god and you're reminded then of the promises of restoration to that um and so that's a way of hoping and trusting the promises of god and um, just like the bedellium was divinely just placed down into the garden by God. It was placed there from heaven by God. So was the manna. It was just divinely placed there each morning, placed there by God uh, as provision for his people. And um, you're kind of, as you're an Israelite there in the wilderness, you're, you're in the opposite of the garden. You know, you have been, you know, you're long since been kicked out of the garden, you're now in the wilderness, the opposite of a garden. But you get that little piece, that little reminder, that that provision, the divine, gracious provision from God to keep you going, to remind you, to give you something to look forward to in faith. And so that and that is, you know, that fellowship with God, peace with God, paradise with God. And that's what's offered here to these people. And of course, to all Christians, to everyone. Um, but then he says, um, he'll give the hidden manna to one who conquers. I'll give the hidden manna. I'll give him a white stone. Then he says, a white stone with a new name written on, on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
Now this here seems to combine the white stone, which was the bdellium stone, and then the second part of that, the stone will have a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Um, that is um, combining a couple different images here because um, you have the white bdellium stone, but then the Old Testament, we actually, there are certain stones that were uh, written on. Um, and that was actually the onyx stone, which we also saw in the garden. Very, very interesting. The onyx stone, though, was not white. It was black. Um, and I'm, I'm reading here what uh, one of my commentaries, what it says here on the onyx stone. But, um, so, like I said, it's combining a couple Old Testament images. Bedellium with, with onyx, which was the stone that had was used to have names written in it. And uh, in fact, in the priest's garment or the high priest's garment, um, in what he wore, he had two onyx stones placed on his shoulders. And in these onyx stones, there were engraved in them the names of the tribes of Israel. You can find that in Exodus 28. And so, um, what we have here is a combining of two different images into one. Two different Old Testament images are combined into one here uh, to bring back several, multiple different ideas together. Okay? You have the white onyx stone reminding us of the garden, connected with the manna, and then the white stone connected with the onyx stone, which was black, but... Uh, that's not the picture he wants. He wants the white picture, but with the engraving of the onyx stone. And, you know, the priests have the onyx stones engraved uh, with all the tribes of Israel in it on their uh, shoulders, in their priestly garments. And that, of course, very, very symbolic uh, to the, you know, of the people of God. And, um, so very, very likely, um, it says a new name written on the stone. So uh, a new name, <laughs> which um, likely what is meant here in Revelation, it says that he will receive a new, uh, the stone will have a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Um, one commentator says that when it says no one knows it except the one who receives it, it's the language there is is intending to convey the idea of ownership so no you know we talk about you know and once you know there are times in the bible where we talk about knowing christ or knowing god um and what we mean is not merely knowing information having data but experientially knowing him you know being having uh an experiential knowledge of Christ, an, an intimate knowing. And so that's kind of the idea here, um, is that it's, it is only the name, it's a name that's only given to you, you know. It's only, it's only your name, only you experientially have it. And so that's the idea, and it's, you know, um, likely here, just the, you know, your name in Christ, 
you know, Christian, you know, um, you're something like that is likely what's going on here. So anyway, that is it guys for this episode. I know this was a little bit longer than some of the others, but like I said, a lot of good stuff in here, a lot of good imagery that starts to connect us with the Old Testament and other parts of the Bible and start to connect some of these biblical themes that are very, very important. So I hope this you've enjoyed hearing some of this. This stuff has been just blowing my mind, and I love it. And um, anyway, that'll be that for this episode, and I appreciate you listening. See you in the next one. Thank mm-hmm. you.